three, two, one. This is The Mix Zone by Infront Lab. We chat with sports and innovation leaders from around the globe, talking about everything from the newest technologies to major trends affecting our industry. For those who are joining us for the first time, we're Infront Lab, the innovation branch of Infront Sports and Media. We use technology to improve experiences and create new opportunities in sports and help sports and entertainment organizations by bringing them closer to cutting-edge technologies and startups. We cover all sports-related industries, from data to content and everything in between. I'm Marav Savir, the head of marketing at Infront Lab and host of this podcast. Today, we're doing something a bit different, which I'm very excited about. For the first time, we're welcoming one of our Infront teammates onto the mix zone, Katie Reynolds. Katie is an associate director for the media sales at Infront. Originally from the West Coast of the United States, she spent a lengthy part of her career working for sports giant ESPN in various departments, from production and working on studio shows for the NFL to program and acquisitions for ESPN's digital networks. Her career brought her to Europe, and specifically Switzerland, several years ago, where she worked for CAA 11 with the goal of bringing more of an American commercial mindset to a European federation before joining Infront. Katie, welcome to the Mix Zone. Thanks, Marav. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. And yeah, first one from our Infront team really gets to showcase what it is that we do and what is the value that you bring because you've had quite a journey uh, starting your career out in the U.S. before moving to Europe, production, media rights, very different markets, very different departments in this big industry of sports that we're in at different stages of their evolution. But before we get into all this, share a bit about yourself, your background. You come from a sporting background. You you played uh, football growing up, so this isn't foreign to you, even though you started your career out with American football. Exactly, yes. So um, I started playing soccer, as I used to call it, but football, <laughs> as I call it now, in my full transition to full European. How um, long did it take you to adapt to that? It actually only took me about a month because uh, when I moved to Europe, the company I started at fined me one Swiss franc per use of the word <laughs> soccer. So it was, it was a quick adjustment if I wanted to keep any money in my pocket. Yeah, that, that adds up quickly. It does. So, so yeah, so I started, I grew up playing soccer, football, um, and then um, actually had kind of a, a tough injury when I was in my teens and decided I still wanted to be involved in sports somehow. And um, the American football team at my high school was trying to um, kind of revamp themselves. We're not a strong team. And uh, we brought in some coaches from the NFL and from college who had retired. And they wanted someone who uh, was interested in the sport and also interested in statistics and math. And I was a little bit of a nerd. So I thought, okay, this might be the perfect fit for me. So, um, yeah, so I started working for the team and doing kind of uh, video analysis and that kind of stuff and, and really fell in love with it. Um, and then that took me, I went to, to college at UPenn in Philly, um, and I did the same thing there and decided, uh, even though I had started as pre-med, that maybe that wasn't the path for my career. Um, that is and quite the difference from, from the pre-med change. to production. Exactly. Um, you can ask my dad if he was happy with that transition at the time, <laughs> but um, he's come around to it, I think. Um, so yeah, so then I, I decided that this was the career for me was to, to try sports. And um, so I started in kind of the production side for the the local station, sports station in Philadelphia, interning there during my college years. 
and then like you said went on to uh, to ESPN um, started there as just a project uh, employee working on stats and then joined there um, they just started a new rotational program for production assistants um, just kind of entry level style um, learning the the ropes of production um, and so that's kind of where I, I got the start and it's all gone from there what was that experience like at ESPN? You were there for quite some time and you were there for some prominent moments in the company's history when we're talking about technologies and uh, adding new technologies into the mix, including the launch of digital services. What was it like experiencing that along with the ESPN family? Yeah, it was it was really cool. So like you mentioned, I was there for eight years. So basically directly out of college um, up until I was 30. So um, a really formative time in my life as well. Um, and, and like you said, a formative time for the company. I think when I started, which was in 2011, um, was really when we started hearing the term cord cutting going around mm -hmm. about, um, you know, the, the, the risk that this sort of stable environment of cable programming, the cable sports network in the case of ESPN, wasn't going to be so stable anymore. Um, and so really from, from day one of when I started there, there was this idea of how are we going to adapt to um, the new way that people are consuming media. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, I ended up being there um, for the launch of ESPN Plus, uh, which was, was huge. It was, you know, at the time everyone said it was the Netflix of sports because I think that was, um, <laughs> you know, kind of the way that people understood it at the time um, was just kind of that was the... Netflix was the idea of what is on-demand viewing in a sense. Um, and that's what it was, you know, it wasn't scheduled in terms of, you know, one thing after the other on a 24-hour network. It was multiple things at the same time. Um, and that that was really cool because it, you know, as coming from a soccer football background, that was um, really exciting for, for me as a fan because suddenly you could reach uh, the fans of that sport, which, you know, it's up to this point have still in some cases been considered a bit of a niche sport in the U.S., um, obviously growing and growing, but but still not on the level of, you know, American football or basketball. Um, and so a new way to reach fans and, and so working at the time, um, then when I was, when ESPN plus was launching, I was working on, on the soccer property as well as rugby. And, um, that was really exciting because it, it gave this opportunity to suddenly reach those fans in a way that ESPN hadn't been able to before when, when they were just kind of trying to reach the, the mass appeal, I would say sports mm -hmm. of, you know, how to reach the widest audience as opposed to serving a more specific audience. Anytime you introduce something new, there's sort of like those learning curves and pain points. What was that like in ESPN? You obviously were talking about the first Netflix of sports of bringing something new to fans that they have never had before. What were some of the things that you learned together, you know, as part of the company and yourself going through this process with the with ESPN? Um, I would say one of the big ones that I've then kind of now been able to experience on the other side as well is um, kind of the education of the rights owners. Um, because, you know, especially at the launch of ESPN Plus, when you're launching an entirely new platform, you don't have a subscriber base. Whereas, you know, compared to you could say, all right, if, if your game airs on ESPN, this is in, you know, 100 million homes at the time. Um, that's a quantifiable number and a very good one at that, that rights owners really wanted that exposure. And so when you know, we first started acquiring things for ESPN Plus, it was kind of met with quite a bit of resistance in terms mm -hmm. of, well, we don't want to be on that 
platform. We want to be on the where all the eyeballs are. Where um, everyone's watching at the same time in the same place and we can quantify it. <laughs> exactly. And so that was that was a really interesting sort of education process of trying to help maybe more sort of old fashioned or or at least just not as involved in, in the tech and media landscape rights owners understand that this was the future. And while, you know, it, it may not look great to start because you're talking about a hundred million homes to at the time zero subscribers now obviously many more than that over the past four years i think we're at now i think it launched in april of 2018 so yeah i mean that that was a hard pill to swallow i think for a lot of rights owners but it was also i think like i said for a lot of them linear wasn't an option it wasn't it didn't reach the, the mass audience that um that was needed for linear and so it was either espn plus or nothing and once you came to that kind of decision point, then people said, okay, you know, the, the name of ESPN was enough to, to keep it going. And it really provided a great opportunity for a lot of um, new properties or properties that just didn't have much exposure in the U.S. up till that point. And, you know, we're looking back only four years ago when this was still new of moving all sports to this Netflix-like environment. And now it's second nature to us to have everything in one place. And a lot of that is because of the social era, of the competition of the different streaming services. What changes have you seen over the past couple of years in the sports industry specifically when it comes to social media and how that changed what we're doing? Yeah, I mean, social media, I think, has changed in in two kind of main ways. One is that kind of on a larger scale, on a macro scale, it's really changed how people consume media and consume sports. And you see, you know, younger generations, you hear that they don't watch a full game, you know, they just consume highlights. So there's that kind of aspect mm -hmm. of it. And then, um, so I think that on the macro level changed things to the micro level of suddenly making highlights a lot more important than they ever were before. Um, I think, you know, when it's just, okay, people are going to show this in their regularly scheduled end of day sports show or news show, that has one value. But when it's kind of the only way you may reach people on a completely new platform, like Twitter, highlights on Twitter or highlights on Instagram, um, suddenly highlights became, I think, really in my time in kind of the acquisitions and now sales environment, um, such a different product that is so important for broadcasters to to have um, because it really is that exclusivity of highlights has become a huge huge mm -hmm. asset as opposed to just the live live games themselves you talked about the education process when it comes to media rights owners for ott and for streaming did you have anything similar when it came to selling the rights for social media because obviously there are a lot of rights owners out there who may not have the rights to broadcast the entire game but we're talking about you know the bleacher reports have been doing this for years have the rights to you know, show some highlights how has that also changed you know from your experience selling these rights what has been what has that been like yeah, I mean, that's actually a really interesting um, topic and not just the the big places like Bleacher Report, but also just individual content creators in a sense. Um, I think that originally you, you really saw a shift over, I would say, the last five years or so, as it used to be when, when individuals would post these type of clips, they would immediately get a takedown request from mm -hmm. the rights owner as, you know, this is an infringement of our content. And then over the past years, I think rights owners are starting to realize this is free marketing. Right. Because it, it's it's accounts that people follow and a native organic way to reach new viewers. And so rights owners are really starting to see the value, I think, in allowing this clip usage from non-traditional 
uh, media companies or, like you said, a, a media company that has it in tandem with someone else having the live rights. But then, of course, there's always a flip side. And if that's free, then on the other side, what about those who are paying you, the broadcasters who've paid for rights and highlights, and are they then losing value if you mm -hmm. allow this from the other side? So that's always the interesting part, I think, on, on behalf of the, the rights owners is to kind of balance that, okay, you actually do need finite, like hard, <laughs> cold, hard cash coming in um, to, you know, grow your game and continue financing these types of things. But then you also want to have this nice organic um, marketing to, to help grow your audience. So it's an interesting balancing act. And I'm, I'm very excited to see kind of how it develops and how everyone kind of finds their footing in this landscape. Here we're talking about the small fish, uh, the content creators that you know pop out of nowhere who could become influencers they are also now you know the big fish in the pond we're talking about apple tv and their recent announcement with uh, mls for broadcasting their games what kind of impact does this announcement have and you know in the grander scheme of things the tech giants coming into this world of play when it comes to sports media rights yeah, I mean, I think that the the tech giants coming in is is really cool on a number of levels, and and one is sort of the the re-centralization, let's call it, of of rights, because you know when cord cutting happened, I think everyone was really excited to not have to pay the huge cable <laughs> fees that you would pay in the U.S. But Except then, for now, you're you're paying for Netflix, and you're paying for Amazon, and you're paying for so many different platforms that it's probably exactly, around the same. <laughs> exactly. So then it all adds up. And so then I think now what we're seeing to a certain extent is is maybe people trying again to maybe centralize things a bit more. And that hasn't been possible because no one has the funds to do that because sports rights are expensive. But with a company like Apple, I mean they've got a lot of capital to be able to spend on this type of stuff. So like you see with MLS, it's a global deal. That's insanely rare in the sports industry. I mean, it's it's one thing maybe if, if people are more attuned to the entertainment industry, you might see Netflix has rights to the same movie everywhere. Mm -hmm. But in sports, it's super rare to have rights um, in more than one territory, let alone globally. Um, and I think that's that's a really cool thing that Apple has been able to do is because they actually have a footprint everywhere which you didn't see for broadcasters before you are maybe in one territory or a couple, but to have a global footprint hasn't been possible until these tech giants. Um, so you see it with Amazon has multiple territories and, and you see DAZN has multiple territories now in terms of OTT style or flow sports. Um, and so I think you're, you're going to see maybe more of this where you have these sort of global deals or at least multi, multi, multi territory deals um, that, that, kind of centralize the rights in a way that makes it really easy to promote a partnership in a cool way. Um, and the, like some of the cool things that the MLS and Apple are doing is, you know, kind of having this free subscription with um, ticket holders um, mm -hmm. and, and things like that, where if you don't have a centralized rights in, in one place, you can't do that um, because, you know, it, it's too, it's too complicated when you have, you know, local regional rights holders, plus a national partner, plus an OTT partner. Um, and so those types of opportunities only come when you're able to have this one global or multimedia partner. Um, and that's kind of the cool stuff that I think we're going to see happening more and more with, with these tech giants being able to invest so much. And we talk in terms of investing of, you know, the price of media rights over the years and how it's grown exponentially. Do these type of deals just 
increase the value going forward? Are we going to see media rights uh, just continue to explode when it comes to how much they're paid for? Or is it going to be a little bit more along the lines of how many entities they sell it to or perhaps at a lower price, which still, when you add it up in the grand scheme of things, is going to be a lot more than we've seen in the past? Well, that's a really fascinating question. And I think for at least selfishly, I hope the prices keep going up for my own job. But um, no, I mean, I think also for for the good of, of sports at some point, you know, they can't go on forever. I think we've, we've all heard of this bubble bursting and, and it's been said it's going to happen year after year after year. And, and then, you know, you have had new players come in and then suddenly this b- bubble bursting hasn't happened or it has happened in certain territories or certain um, media climates, but not in others. Um, so I think, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you, you'll, at least for the time being, continue to see prices go up to a certain extent um, because there's players with this type of capital that we've never seen before. Um, but then, like you said, at some point, um, you're also, once the, the prices get too high, you've started to limit yourself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not an extra expert in econ by any <laughs> any measure, but um you know, if, if the price point gets too high, then then, yeah, there's only a couple players in the market and they've already used up the capital that, you know, maybe they want to invest towards something like this. And then you do start to limit yourself. So I think I think we'll see probably some decent growth for the next few years or so. And then um, I think maybe things will start to even out or we'll just see yet another shift that, you know, some at least someone like <laughs> we me never expect. saw coming. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I want to shift a little bit because we've obviously been talking about media rights in this part of the industry, but you also had a unique opportunity uh, to experience this industry on both ends of the Atlantic Ocean, moving from the United States to Europe. First of all, tell us about this decision. It's not a given that somebody picks up their entire life and moves to a new continent. Yeah, it was it was um, a very unique opportunity, I would say. Um, and I'm not even sure I realized how unique it was until I got to Europe. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there. I, I don't have a European passport or anything like that, so I really had to do a, a full visa process. I'm just fully American, um, and, but at, at the time, like I said, I was working on on football, aka soccer, um, and was working on the UEFA national team uh, properties on the on behalf of ESPN. Um, and an opportunity came up with uh, UEFA's agency CAA11 um, here in in Switzerland, where I am now, also with Infront, um, and. It, it was a huge decision. And, and I had, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I'd been at ESPN for eight years. Um, and I kind of always just pictured that that would be my home home forever. I come from a family where my, my parents stayed at the same companies for much of their lives. And so Something I Something that is unheard of these days. Exactly. And so honestly, like when I left university, it was like the fact that I'd been at ESPN for eight years, you know, none of my other friends had been at the same company since they graduated college like I had. So um, it was it was a huge decision, but I just thought it was a really cool opportunity. And, you know, in the U.S., we have the study abroad, as, as you know, having gone to college there. And I didn't do that. And so I thought, OK, well, this is an opportunity. To this kind is my of, study abroad program. <laughs> exactly. Just go. It was the, the year was 2019. So the year before Euro 2020 was supposed to take place. <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so it was kind of this. OK, well, well let's go do this crazy opportunity that I think I only had the chance to do because of the connections that I'd made through ESPN and, and um, you know, see where it takes me, but probably mm-hmm. just do this year, do something cool, 
maybe learn a new language and then come back. Um, but then obviously six months later, after I, after I moved, so moved in September of 2019, COVID hit. Um, and then Euro was postponed and everything was postponed and everyone's <laughs> lives changed so much. And, um, and, and your me, year abroad turned into two years abroad. Exactly. And so I, you know, I decided I really wanted to, I'd made a commitment to, to this company and, and also to myself to, to be in, in Europe and deliver this incredible event, which, you know, having grown up playing, playing football was, was huge for me to work on a Euro. Um, so then I made the commitment to stay at least for, for another year until the, to June, 2021, when, when, when it actually took place. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how I, how I ended up here. And then, um, after that joined in front, um, actually again with, uh, our, our boss, Kimmy, uh, Kranz, who had, uh, I'd worked with when I was at ESPN as well. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a, an adventure for sure. And a lot of, um, learnings and it's, it's different in so many ways and similar in so many ways. Um, but yeah, I think it, it, like you said, it was a unique opportunity and feel, I feel very, very lucky to have been given the opportunity and, and be here. So. You said it's different in many ways, similar in many ways. And the way you described it to me is that you were kind of brought over to help bring that American commercial mindset to Europe. What are those biggest differences? What would you say is the American commercial mindset versus a European one? Um, yeah, I mean, the the big one, I would say, I mean, I think it, it depends, obviously, on, on what kind of federation or league you're talking about. But I'll just use my personal experience with, with UEFA and try not to extrapolate that too much. But but UEFA being such a huge federation and European based, it's obviously just the the federation of European national football teams. Um, you know, has a very European mindset with and and that, if what I've learned actually in my time here is the commercialization in terms of just like advertising on television and in media is much more heavily regulated here in Europe than it is in the U.S. Um, and so there is, I think this visceral reaction to advertising that's often quite negative in Europe of, mm -hmm. of how it kind of cheapens a product or distracts from a product. And what I noticed when I moved here was, you know, just these little messages here and there that don't bother you at all as a U.S. consumer watching sports, you know, mm -hmm. is, is just so common. You don't even necessarily hear it or notice it when when you're in the U.S., um, you know, when when brought up to to you my European colleagues were like, oh God, I hate when that happens. You, you just feel bombarded and can't you just watch the game? And so that was a really interesting kind of awakening for me. And then suddenly, you know, I had obviously worked on these properties from the U.S. side. And I remember thinking like, wow, they really don't let you do much in terms of commercializing. <laughs> um, but obviously that's a huge part for broadcasters and for anyone buying rights um, is you need to be able to refinance in some way if you're going to be spending these crazy amounts of money that we talked about. Um, so there is this kind of development needed, I think, to to help understand, you know, in different cultures, there's different ways of viewing things. And mm -hmm. so what may be cheapening your product in France and may even be illegal to do in France based on their advertising laws is nothing in the U.S. And so um, that was a, a really cool kind of project that that my boss at, at CA11 helped um, kind of bring me in to discuss was to kind of figure out, okay, what can we do? It's obviously still respectful and still in, in the guidelines in general of, of how UEFA wants their product to be viewed, but is maybe a bit more in line with what is standard, let's say, to viewers in the Americas or in Asia, which have much more um, commercialization, just, I would say, as a baseline than, than they do here mm -hmm. in Europe. 
And having been on both sides, what do you think that the Americans can learn from the Europeans and vice versa, the Europeans from the Americans? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, I I would say, and just in terms of sports, let's let's start there. Um, no, I, I think from there's a, there is a certain level of I think um, gravitas, let's say, to to the European style of doing things mm -hmm. that I think in a way makes the gives the quality of the events a, a bit more. Um, just sort of seriousness in a way. And I think mm -hmm. it, it, you can see it carry over a bit um, into, into the way, you know, U.S. fans view uh, maybe American new startup leagues versus established leagues here in Europe. Um, but then on the flip side, I think, um, you know, like I said before, that, that there's a lot to be learned about, you know, what, what's palatable, I think, um, and, and, you know, understanding the need that if we want to keep growing sports and keep growing rights and this type of stuff that that there has to be kind of a give and take in terms of, of commercialization and stuff like that. And you as Katie Reynolds, what have you learned throughout your career that you think is crucial to pass on to others having been on both sides working with both cultures and experiencing what you've experienced? Um, yeah, wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I, I think the main thing and, and this is coming from a very chatty person is um, <laughs> to listen first and, and talk second. Um, I think, you know, that's also maybe a bit of a negative stereotype about Americans in general is, is to, to come in with a, with a certain level of, of at least confidence, if not arrogance, in, um, you know, the, the amount that you know about a certain topic. And I think there's a great level of respect to be gained by, you know, just taking a step back, knowing what you don't know, and um, and realizing that and being able to take that in. But but on the other hand, you know, still being authentic to yourself, because I think, you know, it was funny. I, I joked with my my old boss at ESPN when I was joining that maybe when I got to Europe, I wouldn't go, quote unquote, full Katie. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he was actually really upset about that because he said, no, you know, you are who you are. And, and you know, the people who hired, you know, you be you. Um, and so I think, yeah, obviously it's, it's important to, to have respect and to know what you can learn, but also to not necessarily let certain, um, changes to your environment, change who you are, you know, completely, um, be adaptable, but not, you know, disingenuous and untrue to yourself. Well, we're thankful that full Katie has joined us also. And Katie, it's been great having you for this discussion on the mix zone. It's, it's always enlightening to see both sides of the situation because Europe and America are so different. I've experienced it myself from the production side, and it's always interesting to see what both sides can learn from one another. Absolutely. I think we can learn a lot in sports and out of sports from one another. <laughs> 100%. Well, Katie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Marav. This has been great. That wraps up this episode of The Mix Zone by Infront Lab. I'm Marav Severe. You can find me and the lab on LinkedIn. Don't hesitate to reach out and chat with our team about sports tech solutions or last night's game. Enjoyed the episode? Let us know your thoughts on the podcast. And don't forget to rate us. We'll see you next time.